you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation 19. And at the same time, I'd say go ahead and turn to Revelation, or sorry, to Psalm chapter 10. Uh, so we're going to start in Psalm 10 and then we'll, we'll move to Revelation 19. As you are turning there, there's a few things that I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, Many of you know we're part of the NAB, which is the North American Baptist denomination. We make up the Northwest region, which is Oregon, Washington, I'm blanking on states at this moment, Idaho, Western Montana, maybe Utah, if Chris can decide if we're in Utah. Are we in Utah? He's still indecisive. You're going to need to pray for Chris Gorman. No, really neat things about Utah. Uh, But uh, So I, I had the opportunity last week as Chris preached here. You notice, you notice he had the fun passage I mean, just saying, he had the fun passage, and then, yeah, I heard, I heard some rumors about getting pretty charismatic and dancing and jumping, and so, so that's cool. Chris and I, we have an elders meeting on Wednesday, uh, and then Ben, Ben in two weeks, he gets to preach Revelation 21, which is the whole bride of Christ coming in. I get stuck with all the judgment passages. <laughs> I don't know how, I mean, I planned it, but anyways... Uh, so I was up in Bellingham, and in fact, it was fun. Jeff Reese was up there with his mom and, and one of his boys, uh, and, and we were with Brian McSwan, who is part of a church plant. Three years ago, they started their church uh, called Legacy, and there was about three or four families in a living room, and I want to say um, at that church service, there was 70-ish people who were gathered there, and they say they have about 40 children also. It's just growing. And, and that's just an amazing testimony of the gospel of grace. So I just want to bring that to your, uh, to your minds uh, for encouragement. And also be praying for Brian as he leads that church. A couple other things. Uh, you might remember, if you were here in the beginning, at the end of the year, uh, by God's grace, he had just blessed us with a surplus of finances. And so we, uh, we had earlier in the year a missionary couple who were looking at going over to Europe to work uh, with refugees. They came and, and were seeking support, and we were able to pray for them. We weren't able to financially pray for or support them at this moment. But uh, because of just how God blessed us, we sent them uh, just a, a $5,000 gift at the end of the year. Just said, hey, just use this wherever you need. So they sent a postcard uh, and just, just saying thank you. Uh, they were so pleased. They were so encouraged that they thank you for your prayers. Uh, and they thank you just for the financial support. Uh, and so that was just a, an amazing testimony of how God had worked just through the giving here. And how they had a need and we were able to give some of that finances there. Uh, so I wanted to bring that to your attention. Uh, one more. Uh, many of you have heard that we've, we've been talking about India more and more, and, and the idea of being able to go and, and see just what's happening there. Uh, and in India, it's a basically 98-99% unreached. Uh, there's 2,300 unreached people groups. The next highest country has about 2,300, 2,600. So it has almost 2,000 more unreached people groups than any other, uh, than any other uh, country. And so if you reach India, largely you reach much of Asia. And so uh, one of the... Uh, when the men who are leading that ministry is actually, is actually in Bellingham, which is the reason we were heading up there this last weekend. And he sent a report a little bit earlier this month, and he said, 
uh, based on the report submitted last year by our indigenous co-workers in Asia, which I think is primarily India, uh, God brought to faith an average of 15 people per day. So that equals to about 5,500 first-time decisions to follow Christ over the course of that year. So that's just incredible. Now, he does say, unfortunately, due to hostile spiritual environments out of which many of these are coming, many will be pressured to abandon their newfound faith. So what he does, he says, pray. Just pray for perseverance. Pray uh, that uh, they will be able to be discipled and strengthened within the church. Um, But as we started today, I just wanted to bring to your attention what God is doing in the Northwest what God is, uh, is doing down in Oregon uh, through a missionary couple, hopefully being able to go to Europe, what's happening in Asia, as they're just seeing many, many people come to Christ. Uh, the gospel is going forth. There's good, good news that is happening. And so I wanted to bring that to your attention as we begin looking at our text, because our text today is Revelation 19, which looks at the return of Christ uh, and the judgment that he will bring. But before we look there, I want to read from Psalm 10. And so we're just going to read the first 11 verses of Psalm 10. So I want you to to follow along, and he's going to start talking about the wicked. And these are unbelievers, and he's going to talk about how they operate and how they think. And I just want you to wrestle with that. Do you see this happening today? So we have, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at times, at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks an ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Let me ask you, does, does that seem true in this world? Does it look like the wicked prosper? I mean, do you see the, the truth of this message? Does it look like the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer at times? Does it look like God at times has forgotten and doesn't see all the evils that take place? I mean, you're ever going, if God is on his throne, why does he allow this? Why is this happening? Well, a central message in Revelation is that there is going to be a present reality. The present reality of this world is that there is suffering and that there is persecution and that the church, as Christians, we are called to persevere and stand firm. Revelation tells us that the present reality is suffering and persecution, but it says that will not last. It tells us there's a day coming in which sin, suffering, and shame will be forever removed. And we know that, right? When we come to the Bible, but sometimes I think we forget that. 
I mean, do we actually know that there's a day in which all evil, all rebelliousness, and all wickedness will be removed forever? I mean, when you get to Revelation, I think it's 22, it says the gates of the city are open forever. You want to know why? Because there's no enemies. There's no wickedness. There's no rebellion. But I think sometimes as Christians, we, we forget this truth. We get, we get tunnel visioned. We watch Fox, CNN, pick your, pick your network, and we just see... We see chaos, we see wickedness, we see um, immorality, just abundant. And we go, how? How is this happening? So let me, read, let me read a few more verses in Psalm 10, starting verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Now listen to this, verse 14. But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Um, A day is coming in which we will see that Jesus will rise, and his rule, which is a reality, will become, a, will become fully known in this world. In Revelation 19, which is where we're at today, we're going to read about that day. We're going to read about the day that Jesus comes, and that he will break the arm of the wicked. So this, this passage, while it is judgment, and sometimes as we're walking through these, we kind of get uncomfortable, but this passage is meant... To give us hope. It's meant to remind us that our God does not have a blind eye to the happenings of here on earth. This text is meant to give us hope, to call us to persevere. I want you to think about these 5,500 believers that came to Christ this last year and that now they're going to be pressured because of persecution and suffering to, to potentially turn away from the faith. This message is no, you can endure. No, there's a day coming when there will be no persecution. There's a day coming... When we will gather around the throne and there will be no more sin, there will be no fighting, there will be no evil that takes place. This is also a passage that is meant to warn those who reject Jesus of the coming destruction. So I want us to just keep all of that in mind as we come into Revelation 19. I don't know if we'll be be shouting out hallelujahs today. Chris, maybe if if you see a way for us to work that in, I just want you to shout and we will follow. Hallelujah. There you go. So, I haven't gone back and listened yet, but I, I need to listen to the sermon. So, uh, all right, if you don't mind, uh, stand as we read Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. We stand at the reading of God's word. We do so because this is his word. It comes inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Let's read. This is John writing in verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Like right on cue. Chris, where were you? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you now, and as we open up this passage, God, we just, we just ask for wisdom. God, help us to see the, the message that is laid here for us. You, O oh God, are king. You are the great warrior king who one day is coming to bring judgment. There are consequences for not trusting in your son Jesus. And God, may we see that. Give us understanding. Give us humility. May this passage move us to praise you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. May we be moved to praise you as we understand that God... This is a passage demonstrating your justice, demonstrating your holiness, demonstrating your wisdom, revealing to us that, God, you do see all mischief and vexation, and that you will rise to break the arm of the wicked, that sin will not go unpunished. Well, we see this passage, God, today as a way that you are demonstrating your love for your bride, the church, as you come to judge those who have persecuted your bride. God, move us to praise. Move us to perseverance and holiness. Move us to desire to proclaim the gospel all the more. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. There's many ways we could go about this passage, but what I did is we pulled out five truths that we see um, about Jesus in this passage. Uh, So number one, We're going to see Jesus is the ultimate warrior king. In verse 11, we see Jesus entering the stage on a white horse. Now, kings and Caesars often would enter into the city on white horses, revealing, uh, demonstrating their power, showing everyone that they have authority. And so this vision is letting everyone know who the true ultimate king is king is and we know it's jesus for the sword that comes out of his mouth we're told back in revelation one if you remember that a sword comes out from the mouth of jesus we have been looking all throughout uh, the bible towards this day when jesus will come and bring judgment so now he is here and he's pictured on a white horse and verse 11 says he has come to make 
war. This is a war scene. And we see behind them, there's an army. And this may be angels, maybe, but it also it might be the church. And the, and the reason we say that is if it says that dressed in, in fine linen, and if you go back to verse 8, which pre- Chris preached on last week, it says that the church now is dressed in fine linen. So regardless if it's angels, regardless if it's the church, we see that there's a great army coming behind Jesus. Now, when Jesus came the first time, we know he, he came in humility. He came in the flesh, and he came like a lamb that was to be slaughtered. He went to the cross, where he died, and then three days later, he rose again. But we're told his second coming will be very, very different. In Matthew, we read that his coming will be made known throughout the entire world. It will be a global event. It will not be secretive. He will not come and only a few people see him. He will come as the great king, and he will come as a warrior. And Psalm 2, which is this famous psalm looking forward to Jesus ruling over the nations, we read, we read that the nations and the kings of the world take counsel against the Lord. What, what that means is that they, they reject Him. And, and that they figure out ways. How do we rebel against Him? How do we live differently? How do we create a culture that does not honor the God, but will honor all the gods that we create? But then we read in, in Psalm 2 that there's a day coming when God will set His Son over the nations and that He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now we're told Jesus is like a shepherd. And, and, and with, with a shepherd's staff, He disciplines the church. He disciplines those who love Him. And, and He does so that, that we would follow Him. But there's a day coming where he will not use the shepherd's staff, but he will use a rod of iron to crush those who have rejected him, those who have attacked his church, his sheep. Revelation 19 is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. In fact, Revelation 19 is the fulfillment of, of all the war passages that we read about in the Old Testament where we see that the angel of the Lord comes and strikes down the enemies of God. I want you to think of like 2 Corinthians 18. This is a great passage. You should go read this one later. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, he sends his powerful army against Jerusalem where Hezekiah is the king. And, and he's got this guy, which I have no idea how to say his name, Rabshikeh, where he's the representative of Assyria. And he stands outside the walls of Jerusalem. And this is what he says. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and the gods of Arpad? Where are the gods of, of Sepharvim and Hena and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, no one has been able to withstand me. Who do you think your God is? 
I got, I got all the idols back here marking every territory that we have conquered and defeated. They were nothing. And now your God will also be one of them. We will defeat you. Your God is unable to save you. And then night falls. And the angel of the Lord comes and strikes down 185,000 Assyrians. And guess what? They go home. Not one arrow is fired from Jerusalem. Now what does that tell us? Ultimately, it's pointing to this great warrior king who will defend his people. And ultimately, that, that story is telling us about Jesus who defends his people and one day will decisively defend the church against all who have opposed, against all who have persecuted his people, against all who have rejected his rule. All of those passages that we read about in the Old Testament that reveal Jesus as his king, as God is this mighty warrior. And when you go through the Psalms, you will read many, many, many Psalms where, where they're calling out, God, arise, strike down our enemies. And ultimately, that's all pointing to what we read here. Jesus is the warrior king who we're told is one day going to come to defend his bride, his church. We also read, number two, Jesus Faithful to all his promises. Look back at verse 11 where it says Jesus is called faithful and true. So not only is Jesus this warrior king, but he's faithful. He's righteous. He's true. He's good. He's the king we've all been waiting for. One thing we see in the Old Testament is that as however the king lives, so also the people do. So if you have a righteous king, the people live righteously. If you have a wicked king, the, the people are led into wickedness. The king is representative of all the people. Now the problem is, is we've never had a great king. Even David, the greatest king in the Old Testament, was still a murderer and adulterer. And he was told, to have a, he, was told he had a, a heart after God. But what we need is, is a perfect king, a righteous king, one who never has an evil thought, one who never does that which is unrighteous, one who is always faithful to God, one who will always keep his promises. And as he is representative of his people, if we have a righteous king, then that means he will lead us eternally in righteousness. Sometimes people say, but in heaven, will we ever, will we ever sin again? No. Why? I mean, there's many reasons, ways we can answer that, but one way is because we have a perfect, righteous king. And because he leads us in perfect righteousness, we will forever follow him in righteousness. Does that make sense? He's the representative of all of his people. And so Jesus is the long-awaited king. He's faithful and true. He's the king that the entire Old Testament has been waiting for. He will never break his promises and he lead us in truth and righteousness. Number three, Jesus is holy and righteous judge. So we see he comes to make war. Well, we might say, well, why? Why is, he throwing, why is he coming to make war? Is he just throwing some divine cosmic temper tantrum? We know that's not true. Verse 11 says he's come to judge. So this war that he's bringing is not random. He's not just looking at gaining more territory, but this is a war of judgment. This is a war 
of this is a judgment that the whole Bible has also been pointing us to. When we read about the great judgments in the Old Testament, they're all a shadow of a much greater judgment of what we see in Revelation 19. When we're reading about Sodom and Gomorrah and we see fire and hell rain down on a city of immorality, it ultimately points us to one day fire and hell will rain down on a world of immorality. When we see that God flooded the earth, that points to one day God will decisively end all wickedness. When God had Achan and his family stoned, if you remember that, and Joshua for not trusting in God, that judgment points to Revelation 19. When God sent Israel into exile as judgment because they continually disobeyed Him, that's pointing to a great judgment for all who will disobey Him and the consequences that will follow. And why is there judgment? We know there's judgment because of sin. Paul says in Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says it's because of sin. There is wrath because we are sinful. You know, when we go back to Genesis, and we read about the creation account, we see that, that all the animals are made according to their kind, the fish according to their kind, the winged creatures, the birds according to their kind, all the animals of the field are according to their kind. And then we come to humanity. What are we made after? We're not made after any other kind that's on earth we're made in the image of god so we're made as as the climax of all the creation genesis reveals to us that humanity is made to reflect god we were we're made so that every every thought that we have every action every word that we speak our very lives are meant to image god are meant to reflect god are meant to bring him glory but because of sin we now reject God, and we see that in Adam and Eve. Rather than submit to the rule of God, they say, wait a minute, maybe we can be God. And so they, rather than bow before the throne of God, they seek to take God's throne. Um, you ever see a mirror that gets hit by a rock, and like all the pieces are still there, but it's just fragmented completely, and you stand before it, and it doesn't properly image you? That's what humanity is because of sin. No longer do we image God, but we're a broken fragmentation. And now, we're a distorted image. So rather than bowing before God, we've made other gods. Or, I think what we see, especially here in America, is we deny the existence of any God. In fact, that seems to be coming a more and more cultural norm. To believe in God is becoming more of a ridiculous notion, a, a, an attitude of the weak or of the less intellectual here in America. I, I think America, we say in many ways, embodies what we read in Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I think we're seeing that grow more and more and more in this country. But this is why Jesus came, right? Jesus came the first time in humility 2,000 years ago so he would take our punishment. I love uh, David Platt. I think it's in a book that he gave this example. And he said, imagine that there's a wall of water 100 miles wide and 100 miles tall, and it's coming right at you. There's no escape. 
And this is the wrath of God. It's coming at you. Death is imminent. There's nothing you can do to avoid it. And right before it comes at you, right before it comes to destroy you, the ground opens up before, before you and swallows up the entire wall of water. And he says, that's what the cross does. When Jesus goes to the cross, he stands in your place and in my place that he would absorb God's wrath. That the punishment that you deserve, the punishment that I deserve, the punishment that all humanity deserves, that he would stand in our place and absorb that wrath. And do you all remember that word that we use? It starts with P, ends in roitiation. Propitiation, right? It means wrath absorber. That's what it is. Jesus came to be our substitute, to stand in our place and absorb God's wrath. That's the good news of the gospel. The bad news is we're all sinful. We all deserve punishment. The good news is Jesus comes so that we could be saved. So he would take that punishment, the punishment that we cannot bear. At the cross, you stood in our place. In Revelation 13, we read, Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. And the name that he is called is the word of God. Now, that may be a reference to the blood of the enemies that, that, that we'll have as he tramples over them. But I also think because he uses the word word of God, that he, he calls Jesus the word. Well, John wrote Revelation. He also wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus, John calls Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word. Remember that? So the word is representative of 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 Jesus, letting us know that Jesus is the full revelation of God, and he does that, revealing that Jesus has come to provide forgiveness of sin. So I think that this might be a reference to the gospel, so in the midst of this punishment, he still has uh, that, that he has come first time that he would bear the punishment of all who have believed in him, but for the second time, he comes to bring about punishment and wrath for all who have rejected him. In John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So I ask you, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you truly trusted in Jesus? See, when we come across these judgment passages, sometimes I think we go, they're just kind of they're kind of hard to read. They're kind of uh, they're tough. They're intense. Sometimes we get the whole hell, fire, and brimstone type thinking. But they're also meant to lead us to examination. They're meant to bring us to repentance. And so I ask you: Have you trusted in Jesus? Do you know that God's wrath has been satisfied for you in Jesus Christ? Do you know that because of Jesus you've been adopted into His family? Do you know that because of Jesus you are justified? Do you know that because of Jesus you are now a, a citizen in the kingdom of God? Do you know that Jesus has stood in your place and that all your sins have been taken care of and that there is no wrath, no drop of wrath that will touch you because of what Jesus has done? Do you know that because of Jesus there is peace? Do you have that peace? If you do, then and praise God. But if you're in doubt, if you wonder, if you go, you know, I'm not sure, I've been a part of church for a long time, but have I truly trusted in Jesus? Then I'd say repent today. Repent and believe that He is the one true God who has come to die on the cross for our sins. Apart from Him, there is no hope. I, I would urge you to trust in Him today. Because what we see is that His 
wrath is severe. And if you've not trusted in Jesus, then you still have wrath to bear. And when we come to, to chapter 19, the, the, the visual that it gives us is meant to horrify us. Look at verse 15. We're told, a sword comes from his mouth. We're told he rules like a rod of iron, and he will tread on his enemies like grapes in a wine press, wine press which comes from verse 14. So get that uh, from chapter 14. So get that image in your mind that Jesus is like treading the wine press, and as he crushes the grapes, that's his wrath coming upon unbelievers. That actually comes from Isaiah 63. So I, I just want to read this. As I read this, just think the imagery that's being communicated. This is a prophecy of what Christ will do. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered, splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood. It's supposed to be gruesome. It's supposed to be gruesome as we hear that. It's supposed to inform us and let us know there are are consequences for sin. There are consequences for disobedience. And, And parents... When you discipline your children, do you know what you're teaching them? That there are consequences for disobedience. That's what you're doing. When you, when you show them that for their rebellion against you, as a, as a father, as a mother, you've been placed in the lives of your parents as the representative of God to teach them, disobedi- to teach them obedience and the consequences of disobedience. That's why when you go to Proverbs, it talks about taking the rod to the children. It's not about hurting them. It's about discipline as a shepherd does a sheep. Because if they don't learn that, one day there's a rod of iron that will be waiting. And so so remember, as as we teach our children, discipline is a good thing. And children, I know as you're hearing that, you're going, yeah, discipline. Uh, It is an act of love from the parents to teach children that there are consequences when we disobey authorities. Just as there are consequences that we know when we disobey the worldly authorities, such as police and, and other things in our land. All of that is meant to teach us that there, is ultimately author- that there are ultimately grave consequences for disobeying and rebelling against the one true king. And so what does it look like for, for Jesus to come and tread the winepress? We'll go to verse 17, 18. We see that there's, there's this gathering that's going to happen. And we read, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Supper time! That's what he does. He's ringing the dinner bell, right? And he says, Come gather for the great supper of God. And then verse 18, we read about them gorging their, their mouths, their beaks on the flesh of the enemies of God. So think roadkill. You're ever driving and you just see like massive roadkill and these big birds are just tearing at it and as you're coming up on it, like one of the birds flies away and flesh is hanging from his mouth. As he fly- you ever seen that? I think we've all seen that. Think roadkill here. 
That's the picture of gruesomeness that is being communicated here. This is what is called the great battle of Armageddon. We read about this in chapter 16. One of the last verses says this, this is Armageddon. But let me ask you, does, does it look like a battle? Does this look like we got two forces coming against each other and, and we're, we're sitting there going, what, what's going to happen? Is this a picture of Braveheart? Jesus says the painted face, you know, freedom! Like, is that, is that really the picture? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think it, it's a picture of slaughter. That's what it is. One commentator said this. Let's cut to the chase. Before anybody on earth can utter the word Armageddon, the battle be, will be over. When God, determines, when God determines the end has come, it's curtain. This is what another guy said. He said, then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will just be a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered. Once he spoke a word to a howling winds and heavy and heaving waves, and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul, and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous, loudmouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle working windbag from the pit, is punctured and still, and word and the and word and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals and admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all they fall, and the vultures descend and cover the scene. I think that's a pretty good description of what's happening here. This is the judgment that, that we read about in the Bible. And, and it's not random, Spoiler alert, so if you've watched the last Avenger movie, spoiler, too bad, you should have, um, when Thanos at the end snaps his fingers, anybody seen it? If you haven't seen that, you should have. Um, we're huge, huge superhero family. Um, it's all because of my wife. It's true. Um, like he snaps his finger, and then what happens? Like half of all the galaxy the universe they're turning to dust right and it's totally random like it's not based upon age it's not based upon sex it's not based upon a race it's not based upon what people have done or not done it's just random like there, there is no basis for what happens just people turning dust all over half of all known living beings are killed at that moment that is not what this is rather what we read is that um, in verse 18, is the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of men, both free and small and great, who will be judged. And who are these people? Look at verse 20. There are all those who have received the mark of the beast. Remember, in Revelation, there's all these, these true pictures. We have the picture of the true trinity and the picture of the sealing of the church. But then there's this picture of the false trinity with the dragon and, and the beast and, and, the and the false prophet. We have the bride, we have the false bride, the anti-bride, which we saw in chapter 17 and 18 is killed. We have the sealing of the church, which is the Holy Spirit, and, and the name of God written on the foreheads. And then there's the false, false sealing that takes place. 
which is the mark of the beast, of the Antichrist. And everyone who has not believed in Christ and has the seal of God has this other seal. And so what we see is that there, all those who have not trusted in Christ will experience this judgment. There is no favoritism. There's no social, political, or financial status that exempts us from, the, from Jesus' wrath. The only hope we have is Jesus. When, when we stand before him, no one is going to be able to say anything about their intellect, about their upbringing, about their environment, about their accomplishments, about their uh, finances, about anything they have done or will do, or anything that they have. Nothing will pardon them from the wrath of God on that day. The only hope we have is the grace of Jesus Christ and trusting in him today. Now you might think as we go through there, it's just like, oh, this is just, this is hard. This is severe, and it is severe, isn't it? Like this is, this is severe. My wife was like, you know it's family Sunday. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, so what does that mean? She's like, you can't say, you know, certain things. So I think, I think we've kept it pretty, pretty family-ish. You can let me know later. Um, it is severe. It's supposed to be severe. Think about it. So the next point, Jesus is worthy of all worship. When we come to verse 16, we read that on Jesus' thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In verse 12, it says he has many diadems. Well, when we go back to like chapter 13, we read about the Antichrist. It says he has 10 Ten diadems, ten crowns. Now, remember the number ten is probably figurative, but, but what we have here is Jesus has many, there's too many to count. See, Jesus is the ultimate king. This is why his judgment is severe. When we read about the lake of fire and birds gorging themselves and the flesh of unbelievers, this, this roadkill scene, we're supposed to be horrified, but this is not a petty ruler in a small country or a province that is bringing judgment on peoples, this is the judgment of the cosmic king. In the book of Esther, I was thinking about this morning. In the book of Esther, in chapter 2, we read about two guys, and they're plotting a plan, uh, plotting a plan. They're plotting to kill uh, the king, the king of Persia. And so they create their plan. Mordecai overhears it. He tells the king and... And their plan is, is, is found out, and they are hung. They're punished. They committed treason, and therefore committing treason against the king was death. And when we read that, we don't think anything of it. We go, well, yeah. If you're going to commit treason against the ruler of the country in which you live, you're going to die, right? So how much more, then, is there going to be punishment for those who reject the one who spoke everything into existence, the one whose throne sits above all the heavens, the one who rules heaven and earth. How much more? If we would not, if, if we anoint or appoint uh, human judges to, to, judge, to judge those who break the law, and we would throw them off the bench if they did not condemn those who broke the law, how much more is our God who is holy? and righteous, and perfect, going to bring judgment on those who have broken his law, who have rejected him, who have rebelled against him. So when people start going, hey, that's not fair, no, it's because they haven't, they don't have the proper understanding of what king 
we are talking about. In Romans 1, Paul gives this list of sins. And then he says, kind of as the catch-all at the end, we keep inventing new ways to sin against God. We're inventors of evil. What we hear, what we learn here is the only hope we have is to trust in Jesus Christ. And if we reject Jesus, there will be punishments that take place. And that's what we read about here. Now some say, when will this judgment take place? So now, now we'll, we'll, we'll zero in on the time frame. At the sixth bowl, we read that the beast will gather all the nations together. So that's what we read in the sixth bowl, which takes place in chapter 16. So the sixth bowl, all the nations will gather. Remember, he's calling all the nations to cross the river Euphrates. Remember, that's a picture of the enemies of God coming against the people of God. Now, chapter 17 gives us a little more detail, and it says, all the nations, meaning the the ten kings, all the nations, give their power to the beast. At that point, what we understand is that they will turn on Babylon, which we read about two weeks ago, and destroy Babylon, which represents the false false bride, the idolatrous culture of the world. Um, The church will endure great persecution we read about in revelation that there's this hour there there's these three and a half days that are coming where intense persecution where it's going to look like the church is going to be destroyed when ben preached back in revelation uh, chapter 11 remember that crazy passage it says and they give gifts when the church is destroyed they, it's like christmas and you just read that you're going it's so weird and morbid um and so it's that time frame that we've been looking at and all these different kind of uh, angles as we've been moving through. So as we move forward, there's going to be this time where the nations will give all their power to the beast. The church will be greatly persecuted. Babylon will be destroyed. And it's at that moment that Christ will come and break the arm of the wicked. It gives us no time frame. There's no chart that will let you know when Christ is coming. The only thing we know is, is that there will be suffering and persecution until that day. And the message of Revelation is we can endure, trust in Christ. A day is coming. The King will come. And that's what we continue to trust in. That's our message to those who are in India, and those in Asia who have come to know Christ are now enduring persecution. We say, you can endure. The Spirit that was with Christ, that that persevered Him, is now in you that you would persevere and that you can stand firm. And the last one, we have to see that Jesus is merciful by warning us of this judgment. We kind of walk through this and it's like intense, 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 and intense. Um, But we must see that God's given us His Word that we would know that we would know about this judgment. He's given us his word that we would know about him, about his son Jesus. God has given us his word that we would see his extravagant grace in Jesus Christ. He's given us his word so we would know that he's being patient right now towards unbelievers, that this is a time of mercy, that people would believe in him. God has given us his word so that we who believe in him would know all the riches that are given to us and that we will experience as we live in the new heavens and new earth. He gives us his word so that we would know the horrors of judgment for rejecting him. God gives us his word so that we would understand all of these things about God. So when we read Revelation 19, we must read the entire chapter together. We do a really good job sometimes at segmenting things out and only focusing on one, but 
Chapter 19 is meant to be read together. There's two people here, and there's two feasts that are taking place. This is a, this is a picture book. Earlier, what Chris preached last week, there's a wedding feast. And there, this is a picture of great joy. Where what, What's happening? People are shouting hallelujah, right? That's what's happening here. In the early part of chapter 19, the church, the bride of Christ, is being gathered together. Um, as Christ returns, He will gather all of the church uh, to be with Him in the new heavens and new earth. It's a time of celebration. And they will feast at a wedding feast. It will be a great party. Great joy is being communicated. But then there's this other feast where those who attend will not dine but be dined upon. And who is this feast? Well, it's, it's those who have rejected Christ. You see, it's, it's a picture book. We're not to read it like chronologically, like trying to think, okay, is there a sequence of events? No, he's presenting both of these pictures as a, as a picture of mercy for us that we would see, okay, here's the wedding feast. Will you trust Christ and join him at the wedding feast and have eternal joy and share in the riches of Christ? Or will you reject him and be feast upon and experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. These pictures are placed here to show us this is the result of those who trust in Christ. This is the result of those who will reject Christ. What will you do? This is, this is mercy here. So I get it. When, we, when we, we're walking through here, we can't miss the judgment, right? It's thick. It's roadkill. It's nasty. And so we want to look at that. We want to be horrified at that. But then we also need to step back and say, okay, there's the bigger picture here too. There's two feasts. There's two people groups. One experiences great joy. One experiences great wrath. Why? It all depends on have they trusted in Christ. Hear this. The biggest decision that needs to be made today is not how the government will fix this shutdown thing in the next 21 days. The biggest decision is not about border security. The biggest decision is not about who will be named MVP of the NFL this year or NBA or NFL, ah, or MVP of the NBA. The biggest decision is not where you might move, what job you might take, who you might marry, or anything like that, which those are all good things to wrestle with and think about. The biggest decision that needs to be made is which feast will you attend? That's the decision that this text is bringing to us. Will we be gathered at the wedding feast? You have confidence. Look, the Bible has given to us that we would have confidence. If you are here and you don't have confidence, repent today of your sins. Trust in Jesus. We are meant to know for certain. Remember, we preached 1 John uh, this summer. And 1 John writes, I write this that you would know. I write this that you would know. I write this that you would know. We are to know that we are saved and a part of the family of God. There's confidence that we are to have. Do you know that? If you do not, then repent today and trust in Jesus. Will you be at the wedding feast? Do you know for certain that your sins have been paid for at the cross? I want to encourage you. This passage is meant to uh, help us understand the consequences for disobeying God. That we would repent if we do not know him. That we would be spurred on in our faith. That we would persevere. Just think about this. Going to, going to Christians in India right now who are persecuted. Do you hear, do you hear the, the hope that this message gives to a persecuted people? A day is coming. 
the fight will be over. And it's also given to remind us of the responsibility we have to share the gospel. If this is the judgment that's going to come, the only way the unbelievers will hear about it is if we go. The only way they will know is if we tell them the gospel. So let us love. Let us do acts of love and acts of kindness. Those are amazing things that we're called to do every single day to let people see the transformation that's taking place in our lives. But let us also go and speak the gospel. So I want to encourage you, who do you need to go share the gospel with today? Who is God placing on your heart? Let me close by reading John 3, 36, and then I'll have the men come forward. It says, this is Jesus, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let us believe in Jesus. Our Father...